was an investigation after everything was finished in 2006. I got a call from Scotland Yard, serious crime office. <laughs> and they asked me all kinds of questions, mostly about my our Egyptian partner. So I'm sure there's something going on there. Today on If Passports Could Talk, we chat with Christoph Kapeller. Born in southeastern Austria, only 10 miles from the Slovenian border, Christoph Kapeller realized his yearning to build and explore at an early age. From quaint natural views along the countryside to colorful buildings and cities like Graz and Vienna, childhood was full of inspirational vistas. I grew up in a small place. Uh, it's, I think it's about 10,000 people in south of Graz, in uh, what they call the Western Styrian area. It's basically a place is called Deutschlandsberg, and it's at the foot of a medium-high mountain, and there's all vineyards and uh, hills around it. Very beautiful. My father was a pharmacist. He owned a pharmacy at the main street of the town. Oh, he was a very interesting, very generous uh, guy. He uh, he was a pharmacist also. He had uh, various other hobbies, if you call that. So he was a, a passionate uh, hunter, but not really into shooting deer. He was more into, uh, well, he did shoot them too, but uh, more or less he was fascinated by nature, fascinated by the animals, fascinated by being out there. And, you know, there were a lot of times when I went with him and he was also, a, when he was young, he was a photographer. I mean, he, he had a hobby. He did that as a hobby. He had a dark room and did all that. He was into photography before uh, I was born. So, uh, you know, I think he had pretty much given it, well, not given it up, but he was no longer into black and white, dark room and, and that kind of stuff. We talked about it. Uh, he gave me my first camera. I did like it a lot at that time. And I did go and work in darkroom and stuff like that. But it didn't go anywhere at that time because, you know, other interests were stronger, I guess. So uh, I picked it up later in life again. My mother, uh, she came uh, from a family in Graz, which is the nearest a uh, little bit bigger town. Uh, it's about, um, well, I think right now it's about 300,000 or 350,000 people. And uh, my grandparents lived there in Graz, so uh, they would come almost every weekend to see us. Uh, and my mom was, uh, was a very good cook and uh, she was uh, into music. She loved the opera. She loved classical music. So I got a lot, a lot to classical music. Of course, at that time, I wasn't very fond of it, uh, rebelled against it. She also worked part-time in the pharmacy. She had a lot of, you know, I mean, she was very busy, you know, doing the three children household and working in the pharmacy. And she would, uh, you know, tell us stories. And she was very, very uh, kind and very, very beautiful woman. I mean, it was a multi, multi-generational household. Uh, we also, uh, my grandmother the, on the father's side, she lived there. And I also have some memory of my grandfather from my father's side. 
although he died when I was really young, but I still remember him uh, taking long walks with him. Uh, so it was a multi-generational and uh, when we had the garden that was taken care of by my grandmother. And I think my mother was not into that. Uh, she was not a gardener. She didn't, she was not into that. She was more a city girl. You know, my father's family were more from the countryside and my mother's family were city people. We would also spend a lot of time in Graz at, at my, uh, the, the place of my grandparents. So, and I had an uncle, there was an uncle there, there were many uncle and aunts. And so, you know, it was actually not an issue. But I think for her, as I realized later, uh, the little town was, she didn't feel quite comfortable there. And we were three children. Uh, I was the oldest. I had two siblings, a uh, brother three years younger, a sister six years younger. What I remember most about the place, I think, was the exploration. Because, you know, in at that time, uh, I, was, I was born in 56. At that time, in Austria, children could basically just roam the place without any or at least i was allowed to do that with any supervision so we could go anywhere and there's plenty of places uh, to explore and we had great fun in this in this little town i probably shouldn't talk about <laughs> but you know there's a it's 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 surrounded by beautiful uh nature and there is these uh we have this gorge in the back where there's, there's a river coming through and we're swimming there, fishing, uh, even though we were not allowed to fish, but we did it anyway. You know, I remember school. I remember the smell of the school mostly because it was, you know, they had these old desks, uh, wooden desks with a... It was very old-fashioned at school, so I remember the smell of polished wood and things like that. I think that's what sticks out. Then we had a very nice teacher in primary school. Uh, we all loved her, and then she retired, and we were all very sad. Things like that, you know. Imported music, movies, and literature also provided wonder and motivation to experience the world beyond nearby mountaintops. I remember the time when we didn't have a TV, but TV pretty much came in when I was probably 10 years old or so. And then uh, from there on, uh, of course, it would be the news and the news would include the United States. And uh, one thing I remember, there was a music, uh, there was a radio show. It was called, called The Music Box, I think. It was every day at three o'clock in the afternoon. And I was listening to that and they would bring all the latest music uh from from the uk and from the united states and of course i think that was my primary education on the united states i think it started out musically it started out musically that was very influential that that uh, i was religiously listening to that shows listen to all this american new music you know <laughs> Well, it was the time of the Rolling Stones. It was the time of uh, Bob Dylan. It was the you know that that was and then jazz, of course. So that that's that was my passion. I went to these. Uh, they had these fabulous jazz concerts. You know, they had uh, everybody was there. Miles Davis, and I went to those a lot. 
even when I was, I think I started going when I was 16, 17, they would have them every year and they would, the biggest guys or women in jazz would show up and it was just fabulous. They had those uh, festivals in the middle of nowhere where you just put up tents and things, you know, like little Woodstock for one day. <laughs> uh, it was good. I was into sports. I was into uh, track and field and uh, skiing. Of course, every Austrian is into skiing, but I, I, I was into, into the racing. I didn't have great success, but I was into ski racing. I was into swimming and track and field. And we did that a lot. The way I got into art, I, in high school, I had a, a, a teacher. Oh my, I'm still in contact with him. His name is Wolfgang Tamo, and uh, he was very influential. Uh, so he was basically the one that showed us things that we didn't see before, you know, in, in terms of conceptual art and what's going on. The instinct of a parent to protect can sometimes hinder the youthful dreams of a child, but Dreams are powerful, and waves of disapproval may only strengthen the urge to pursue one's passions. My father desperately wanted me to become a pharmacist. That was a bit of a problem, because I was not so much into that. I was, you know, I it was interesting. Looking back at it now, it was probably the right thing. I mean, it was the right thing not to do it because, you know, it didn't get more interesting than it was then. It was a lot more interesting in that during that time when they were mis mixing all the things by themselves and making their own pills. Nowadays, when it's just basically a salesperson's job, more or less. I, I remember people sitting in the, when I was little, people sitting in the, in the in the back of the pharmacy with uh, leeches on you know i mean that was that was the time that was long 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 ago and they would mix all these things there was all these apparatus that would uh, make their own alcohol they would do all these kind of, they had all these machines but all this doesn't exist anymore so it was it was fascinating interesting at that time but i decided i was more into the the arts more or less and was not so interested in pharmacy and that, I think, was a big disappointment for my father. You know, for instance, if you want to be a pharmacist, you have to take Latin at school, or at that time you did. So I had to do Latin, which was not, I mean, it was interesting, but it was not, I didn't think it was very useful. I wanted to do French. So now I couldn't do French. So there was, was a little bit of friction there. I did the French anyway later on, but, but never mind. I had to do the Latin. And so, when, you, when I went to university, when I was 18, I decided to do the architecture. There was a little bit of a, you know, I was all dabbling in, in, in theater. I was doing a little bit of theater, a little bit of directing. I directed a little, I directed the Harold Pinter when I was 17 or so uh, for a student group. I was playing with a little bit of a, a, a amateur theater in Graz. So I was a little bit into that, but my passion was, the main passion was in architecture and in the arts. My brother became a musician, composer, and a musicologist. And my sister studied sociology, so, so none of them did it. And uh, he finally uh, sold, the, sold the pharmacy and he got over it. I think 
you know, he was, I think he also realized that being a pharmacist was not what he, what it used to be. And I, I think he, he, he had that realization too. One thing I remember is, I don't know, um, there was this Italian avant-garde architectural group called the Super Studio. They made those conceptual uh, drawings. They didn't build anything, but they, they had those conceptual drawings of futuristic architecture, and he showed that to us. And I thought that was super cool. And that, I think that's when I got the bug to, you know, to look into what architecture was. But, you know, aside from that, he would um, familiarize us with all kinds of, you know, whatever the contemporary art in the 60s and 70s was, you know, including the uh, abstract expressionists, uh, United States and Andy Warhol, etc., etc., etc. I was pretty familiar with all that. And then the other thing, I, the other thing was that we were familiar with the architects because uh, my my parents had her their house designed by an architect. So that guy would show up once in a while, and I was fascinated by him too. So I thought this is very interesting what this guy does. You know, he comes up with this. Uh, sketches and drawings and this and that and then he would they would put it into and it would actually then become something real it was interesting i registered for for the university in architecture and it was very very difficult at the beginning it was it was really it was really difficult because I didn't have the, I didn't really have the math and uh, geometric skills that were required at that time, which I don't think they required it now. But at that time, it was pretty tough. So the first year was really tough. After that, it became easy. You know, I thought it was this creative thing. You create things that don't exist before, so that who doesn't want to do that? But then. Uh, you came in and then you were sitting with all these other engineering students in Mathematics 1, Mathematics 2, Mathematics 3, Geometry 1, Geometry 2, Geometry 3, and they were all, nothing about architecture, it's all about, it was a university course in mathematics, and then you were course in geometry, and uh, you had to um, draw like spheres with, you know, and then cut the spheres with a plane and draw the exact uh, cut, etc., etc., etc. We had a special drawing room, uh, which was basically run by us students. So we had, there was a series of four or five drawing rooms at the top of the university, where there were each one with about 30, 40 people. And we would basically live there more or less you know not sleep there but live there during the day and do all our exams and everything as a group so that was pretty influential i think that was a you know it was like this experience of a group of people working or working things out as a group we would be teaching each other or the young ones would be taught by the older ones and i think that was more influential than school itself Growth often comes from triumphs over adversity and discomfort. Just as Christoph was beginning to find stability in his pursuits, he understood the need to move and overcome new challenges. My relationship to the United States 
I was interested. I was I was really interested to see what was going on, and、uh, I wanted to go several times. It didn't work out、uh, during my studies,、um, so I didn't. But I was very much aware of what was going on、uh, architecturally in the field of arts, and of course. In music, so I, I I was interested. You know, during school I had a lot of we had a lot of very interesting influences. We had people coming from all over the world、uh, to be like visiting professors. Like Peter Cook came from England. A guy called Hunziger from Switzerland. I mean, there were so many influences. So it, that was great. So it was a, it, actually it was a great school. In Europe, you have this thing about architectural competitions, which basically doesn't exist here. But you do that those over there, and I did win a couple, so I had some success in architecture. So I felt I felt pretty confident. I started working after I finished my studies, and I was really disappointed with that. What most architecture students are, you know, the school is all about creating things. It's all about the creative side, and then when you get into an office or into the profession, it's more about drafting. You know, <laughs> they don't hire you to be creative there. They hire you to be a good draftsman.、So. So getting out of school, going to work, very disappointed. After a year or two, I got really fed up, bored with it, and I decided to、uh, go somewhere else and see what else is there. And I decided that you know going to some place in Europe would be nice, but maybe I should go somewhere far away. And the United States,、um, I had a friend.、Uh, she is an American. Uh, she still lives in Berlin,、uh, but she lived in Austria at that time, and she helped me write applications to universities for、uh, grad school studies. So, so I did. I wrote about fifteen or so, sent them in. You know, I got accepted by three or four, and I got full tuition and teaching assistantship here in LA、uh, at USC. So. That's what I picked, and I flew over here the first time in the United States. It was a shock, of course, touching down in LA. I was lucky enough; I could stay with my friend's sister, who、uh, who had a house here and she lived here, so she let me stay with her for、uh, the first month or two until I found something. So that was a good thing; it was a good transition. But then. The whole thing about nobody in the streets and、uh, things being so different to、uh, Europe—that was a bit of a shock. I mean, you don't know LA, but、uh, at that time, the public transportation which I had to take was not fantastic. So it took me like over an hour, an hour and a half to get from university to that place, which is not too far away. I could have probably walked it in the same time. So it was a bit of shock. And the school was a shock too, to be honest.、Uh, University of Southern California, good school, good architecture school, but at that time, and that was 1984, that was the height of postmodernism、uh, in architecture. It was all these buildings with hats and buildings with turrets and stuff like that. I was educated as a late modernist in the, you know, with Corbusier and.、Uh, 
Louis Kahn and uh, Alvar Alto, all these kind of people, and to come here and then to see that what they're teaching you here is to put little hats on buildings, that was, that was, <laughs> that was a bit of a shock. The United States became a home away from home for Kristoff, and citizenship was the final piece in making the relationship official. You know, they allowed you to be stay another two years on your visa, something like this, to get some experience. So I worked for the great, late and great Frank Israel, who up to date is just, I think, one of my biggest heroes in architecture. He was a prodigy of Frank Gehry's, so he, they knew each other very well. Um, he was different. So unfortunately, he died of AIDS in the 90s, so unfortunately, it's no longer there. But uh, Frank was great. He was just fantastic. So I worked at his office for a year, year and a half. So I, th I would say that's my biggest influence. Uh, fortunately, I won this uh, a green card lottery. You know, this, uh, they have this lottery every year. Uh, from different countries, so you can send in, you send in your information, and then uh, luckily I won that before my visa ran out. So I had to go back to Vienna to the embassy for the interview, but that was it. So I go, went back for the interview and then came right back here. Despite being born on separate continents thousands of miles apart, the United States introduced Christoph to a new passion, much different than architecture, his wife, Adriana. I met my wife, who is now my wife, Adriana. Uh, I met her through uh, a friend. She was roommate with a friend of mine who also, he was studying philosophy at USC. So she was a roommate with him. She came out of a divorce and was roommating with this guy. And I went to see him one day to go out to dinner. So I met her and well, we hit it off and we're still together after, I don't know, 37 years, I believe. <laughs> she, Adriana, is originally from Argentina and came here in 81 or 82. And we moved together. I started working at different offices. I, you know, I went from Frank Israel to uh, more of a corporate office, a little bit more corporate office uh, to do a little bit of high rise buildings. That was the time when the, the Japanese bought everything, the whole downtown, and they were building all these high rise buildings. So I was part of that and learned a little bit about, you know, tall buildings, high rise buildings and uh, commercial architecture, which was very good. With Frank, we did mostly private residences and with these other people we did more commercial work uh, high-rise buildings and things like that which was super interesting for me i learned a lot there too here comes the interesting part because i had a friend from austria who's who i studied with uh, previously this guy is a norwegian guy uh, his name is chetil torsen and uh we were best friends at, at University in Austria, and we said, well, what well, we actually did do competitions together. So we said we would, we wanted to do another competition. So he came over here, and we discussed it. We decided to do this uh, international big competition on the new library in Alexandria in Egypt. We planned it the year before the competition, and then he came over uh, for, with uh, friends from Norway 
we had another guy here from from LA and myself we were five all together and we rented a place rented an apartment and uh, throughout that competition in six eight weeks during the summer I took vacation from the office so that we rented a place they slept in that place and <laughs> we basically worked day and night on this thing send it in and we saw you know it's a pretty good project but we were all very young we were like 30 32 33 one day i get a call at the office at that corporate office in downtown i get a, I get a call oh yeah we won the first prize in that big deal competition because it was sponsored by unesco and it was international union of architects and the egyptian government they were all behind that i get a call that you know we won that we had to be like a week later we had to be in egypt to receive the prize so so we went and so i went i bought two bottles of champagne for the office and say i'm quitting <laughs> this is it won a competition sorry guys goodbye so i left left the office uh got in a plane went to egypt I mean, it was that that competition was a big deal. It was not a small one. It was one of the biggest international competitions at that time. So it was a real big deal. After years of honing his craft and establishing himself as an advanced architect, Christoph would soon find the chance for his magnum opus. The Library of Alexandria has held a position of great wonder in our historical memory since its destruction around the third century. It would be Christoph's job to interpret this legacy and give it new life. We had to open an office in Norway uh, because the Norwegian government gave half a million dollars to this project. So that was the condition that we opened an office in Norway. So we did that. We, we opened the office called Snøhetta in Norway. That was in 89. I basically moved over there to work on this project. We had no other project. We were like, you know, there was, at that time, there was nothing. We did some bridges, I think some competition for bridges in Norway. Uh, but at that time when we started, we had nothing. Just that one, the library in Alexandria project, that was all. But of course, you win a competition, you think, you know, things are gonna happen right away, they don't took forever until this got started. So first we did a feasibility study for about three or four months. We got paid, luckily we got paid for that so we could survive. But my wife was still in LA because she had a job. She couldn't just leave that job. So, so I had to, we had to arrange things. And she came over to Norway three months later. And we set up shop there in Oslo, Norway. Money was very short in the beginning. And then we got a grant from the Norwegian government again. They were very helpful in this to set up an office in Cairo to get the negotiations going with the Egyptian government. First, we had a big meeting in Aswan. There was a fundraising meeting that we, we did this feasibility study for the, for the library. We built a big model. Actually, I had a friend from Austria, back from Austria, built that model and we made a video and so we presented all that at the big fundraiser in Aswan. And there was everybody, there were sheikhs from Saudi Arabia, from the United Emirates, uh, the princess of Monaco, everybody, the Queen, Queen Sophia of Spain, they were all there at that meeting. And so we presented the thing and uh, they got 
I think half or three quarters of the money raised for this at that meeting. So it was, it was great. But we thought this was going to be run by UNESCO. Uh, but it, of course, it turned out that it was run by the Egyptian government. So and the Egyptian government was not willing to sign the contract right away for some reason, whatever. It was all political. So the Norwegian government then uh, sponsored us to have a year of an office in, in Cairo. Me and my wife, we went to Cairo to open that office and spend a year there. It's a very privileged life as, a, as an expat in a place like Cairo. And Cairo is a great place to be as a foreigner because it's, it's a real party town. It was great. Cairo was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. We had lots of friends, Egyptian and foreigners. We were part of all kinds of groups. I don't know if you know this, uh, this, this English group it's called the Hash House Harriers, basically doing runs in the desert every, every Sunday. I mean, Sundays there are Fridays. So it was great. It was absolutely We went uh, scuba diving in the Red Sea um, almost every weekend. It was a five hour drive, but you know, we, we, went, we went down, it was, an incredible experience, you know, uh, to live in a in a Muslim country. It, it's a very very different culture, and uh, there's a lot of things to get used to. And it's yeah, I just didn't I didn't in Cairo. It was because Cairo is very cosmopolitan, especially where we lived in the center in Zanalek. It's an island on the Nile. There's a lot of foreigners, and people are really used to foreigners. Then when the construction started, we moved to Alexandria, uh, and that's a bit of a different thing because uh, as Cairo is very open and very cosmopolitan, Alexandria is a little bit backwards and more geared to capital of, of memory and, and all these foreigners and everything. None of that exists anymore. Some of the foreigners, foreigners or some of the people that used to live there out of that time, there are now in the 80s and 90s, most everybody else is from you know, from the countryside. So it's very, it's a little bit provincial. So the only thing that's left is the architecture, the beautiful architecture where you can see what a glorious town that was. The daily life in Alexandria is very different. It's very different. So in the summer, you basically can't go out because everybody from the whole of Egypt, they go to Alexandria in the summer to spend the summer vacation. So traffic is horrendous. It's easier to walk than to drive anywhere. In the winter, it's very beautiful. There are very few people and it's, it's, it's a great place in the winter, but uh, it's, it's, how should I say? It's a lot more strict in terms of cultural habits and uh, religion what religion is concerned, a lot more strict than Cairo. And for foreigners, more difficult to live in. For instance, just for instance, you can't swim. There's, you know, there's all these beautiful beaches, but unfortunately it's so dirty that you can't swim in it. You have to drive an hour and a half to go and swim. 
Every six months, the first lady, the Madame Mubarak, the wife of the president, I never had a chance to actually meet to him, but she came by and uh, I had to give her a tour of the library and explain the progress to her. She always said, Capella, why isn't this done yet? <laughs> it was pretty funny. But you know, we had all, all kinds of people coming to visit. Uh, we had a project manager that would, from the, from, the, from the client side, a project manager that would, uh, every time somebody would come and visit, he would ask them for a donation for the library. So it was a little bit embarrassing. So I didn't want to invite people anymore because I was embarrassed, you know. So it was a lot of politics, a lot of, um, especially at the end when people started writing about it, all these people in Egypt would read everything. So there was a New Yorker article coming out and you know, everybody was uh, like crazy about it and uh, fearful as to whether their name would be showing up and they would be fired next day. I mean, it, was, it was difficult, politically difficult. Taking on such a monumental project was bound to be arduous, but the same fiery passion which had fueled Christoph's aversion to a career in pharmaceuticals and willingness to establish himself in new places continued to propel him against the challenges of Egyptian politics and creative production. It was really difficult. I felt like it, this is never going to end. You know, we're going to be here forever in Egypt. It felt a little bit like that. But giving up? No, 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 no. No, you, you don't give up when there's a building being built. Of course, you know, it took its toll. It took its toll because, you know, my relationship with the office in Norway was no longer that fantastic because, of course, they were, they were sitting in Norway and I was sitting down there, so we had kind of different experience in that. That was one of the problems I had with the office in Norway because they were working on all these new competitions, new projects, every day something new, and I was kind of stuck there with this, uh, with this monster. That was a problem. That was for me personally was a problem because you know I had to really struggle to keep my my creativity going there because of course it you know I mean building something is. Always, you know, even when you work on details, it's a creative act. But it's 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 the same thing every day, more or less. They accused me of uh, taking bribes, but I never took any, and I never gave any. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, of course, our Egyptian partner, he was the one that probably got bribed. You know, they wouldn't come to us because we were the foreigners, and they knew that this is not a good thing to do. But they they would go to our Egyptian partner, who I'm sure, I'm sure, I don't know, I can't prove anything, but I'm sure he got bribed, so. The contractor, I'm sure, also got bribed. There was an investigation after everything was finished in 2006. I got a call from Scotland Yard or some, some place in England, the serious crime office, <laughs> they call themselves. And they asked me all kinds of questions, mostly about my uh, our Egyptian partner. So I'm sure there's something going on there. We started construction in 96. And then basically I spent eight years altogether in Egypt. First during design and then I was then the only one overseeing the construction. I had one employee and experienced English construction supervisor who helped me 
And together with our Egyptian friends or partners, we basically oversaw the construction until it was finished in 2001 and opened in 2002. Actually, that was a difficult period because, you know, I, I, I basically broke up or we broke up with the, I broke up with the office and the office broke up with me. So we didn't see things the same way anymore. So it was, it was very difficult. It was actually very painful because I was very good friends. I mean, as I say, best friends with this little guy and I don't know what happened, but, uh, he got rid of a lot of, we were eight partners in the beginning and without, you know, I was spent most of the time on the project in Egypt, so I didn't pay that much attention, but he got rid of everybody and then they got rid of me, basically. And I said, we only want to beat the two of us. And I said, okay, fine, I go to LA and that's it. So that's what I decided to do. So I, that's a, that's a little painful. That was a painful, uh, moment and uh, something that I still don't quite understand, but here it is. And then we move back here. I got a job to teach at USC. I was, uh, there was a dean there that was very supportive of me, of me. So they hired me first as a lecturer and then later on as an associate professor. So. I started teaching at USC. Well, we started out here. First, we lived with some friends and then we rented a place. And it's the same place that we're still in. So that's how our life in LA started. And uh, at the same time, I started a small office in downtown and um, still working on that too. So did some competitions, we did some buildings. I did a, a, oh yeah, that was another thing. We got the, Aga Khan Prize for Architecture in 2004 for the library. So we were all invited to India where the prize was uh, given out by the Aga Khan at that time. I was doing a lot of lectures on the library with all kinds of architectural associations and uh, librarian associations. So I, I went to a lot of places giving lectures to Spain, to Costa Rica, to well, a lot of places, which is great to teach. Students are fantastic. They come up with great ideas and it's just, it's amazing to see all these different ideas in one afternoon. It's just, uh, you know, we do this kind of this thing in architecture schools called studio where it's not that you just uh, stand out there and, and, and lecture. I mean, we do that too, but basically you, it's a critique session. I think it was three times a week, four hours afternoons to talk to everybody. You have maybe 15 students in your studio or 12, 12 to 15. And then you spend 20 minutes with everybody on the project and you just ask questions and it's, I think that's a great, great, great way to get new ideas, you know, because you have to deal with this. You have to be very flexible. You have to deal with all these situations, 20 different or 15 different situations every afternoon. So I think it was very, very, um, enriching creatively. I think later on it became because my office got more busy 
and then it became a bit of a drag because uh, you know three afternoons, four hours is a lot. It's a lot of time of the week. So and 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 teach until six at night, and then go back to the office, work until ten. And it became a little bit too difficult, and that's when I stopped. I I did I taught there for ten years. When a creative passion becomes a profession, the feeling of self-expression may feel obscured by formalities. As Christoph's life took him to diverse sites and scenes, photography became another conduit for his desire to create. I did a lot of photography when I was in Egypt. I have hundreds of slides and things like that of all the monuments and everything. But I didn't do it as know for f photography itself i just did it to record things more or less um, i was always interested in photography but i never looked at it as a thing to do creatively if you want so that came later that actually came i mean the first inkling i had is when um when we took the final images for the library project after it was finished we had this Austrian professional photographer coming down to, to take the images and he spent a week with us. Gerald Zuckman, and he's a great photographer. And he worked with those large scale, large format cameras uh, at that time. And it was just really, really amazing what he could do with his, uh, with his photography. I got interested, actually, you know, during that week that he spent there, I, that's when I rediscovered my interest in dark room and photography and all that. So in a way you're right, it did start in Egypt, but I did not have the time to actually act it out in Egypt. What I did as, uh, for the pictures that I'm doing now, uh, I'm doing mostly these uh, walking neighborhoods. You know, interestingly enough, I've always been fascinated with the city. Uh, so going back to that, those illustrations that I did for Mario Gandalzonas when I was uh, really young, the fascination with Los Angeles has never stopped for me. And that's the reason why we came back here, because it's just such a horizontal jungle that's unbelievable. So you, you turn off a, another street and you find something completely new. And, and that, that's what I find interesting. And that basically drove me to uh, do these uh, walking tours, which I'm doing uh, in different neighborhoods. I got four so far, uh, mostly to shoot spaces and places the face of the city that is not normally seen and i put myself a little rig together so i do it actually handheld four by five most of those so i have a little more flexibility i don't have to put up a tripod and for the night shots i just i think it's too dangerous and that's another reason why i put this rig together to do handheld shooting is because so I don't have to put up a tripod and be too long in one place and all that. So I can go to areas that are a little more adventurous. No, I, I mean, as far as live, living goes, I'm really happy here. So it's just, uh, I mean, you couldn't 
basically ask for a better place. I mean, of course, there's always problems in every place, and uh, we always complain about traffic and you know everything else. But really, as far as the weather goes and the climate, uh, there's no better place than this. And the people, the diversity, and uh, the you know the, the amount of interesting people in this city. I don't think I would want to go somewhere else to live. There's a lot of places I'd be interested to spend time in, uh, more time in, such as Japan or Mexico City or places like that. Time and work allows me to do it, <laughs> which is always the big question. And as far as retirement goes, I, I don't know. Architects don't retire. Thank you for listening to this episode of If Passports Could Talk. Please like and subscribe to learn about new episodes in the future. See you next time.